We have been in a three-week series on generosity. We tend to start our new year out with a little bit of a vision of who we are, who we want to be. So if you've been here for a while or you're visiting, uh, this is who Midtown is and who we want to continue becoming in this city. Um, So we're calling this three-week series Generous. Um, We've talked about what does it mean to be a generous people in three different ways. First week, we looked at what does it mean to be generous with our time. And then last week, we looked at what does it mean to be generous with our talents, our gifts, how do we serve. Um, and then today, we're going to be talking about how, do we, how are we being and becoming a generous people with our treasures, time, talents, and treasures. So today, we're talking about money. That'll handle our space issues, I think. But um, here's what I know when the church, when the pastor says, today, we're going to talk about money. Uh, immediately, we've got tapes. Immediately, we've got narratives about that very idea of a pastor and a church talking about money. Um, because when the church starts to talk about money, people tend to cringe. And I know this is a beautiful thing about this church. It, it, it may not feel like it in the room, but we are very much a cross-generational church. We've got lots of generations in this church. And so we have a generation in the room that grew up in the church, and, or even if they grew up uh, peripherally to the church from a generation ago, when they hear church and money, they know that's manipulative. They know there's some really dark stories. They know there is abuse and there is deceit. And so we have a generation that kind of grew up with that. But then we also have a generation that grew up in church behind that generation or has just started coming to church and the churches that they find themselves in because of a previous generation's experience with money and the abuse and the deceit and the lying and the the conniving and all that with money, there's a new generation of churches that, well, we'll just never talk about money then. And so there's a, there's a generation in the room also that has grown up and has never really heard the church lead people into how to think about money. And so both of those extremes we want to avoid. We don't want to, we're not going to do it abusively, manipulatively. Uh, we certainly aren't, it's not all we're going to talk about. But we also, if we're going to be biblical, the Bible talks a lot about money. There's over 2,300 verses in scripture that deal with money and possessions and stuff. Jesus preached 39 parables. 11 of Jesus' 39 parables deal with money or possessions. It was his most talked about topic. No other topic got as much airtime with Jesus as did money. And so what that means is this, that if you're in this room and you wanna be spiritually alive, if you're in this room and you wanna be spiritually in tune, if you wanna be spirit, have spiritual depth and go to places of deep spiritual reality, here's what this means. Just given the airtime that the Bible gives to money, here's what that means. You will not arrive at a depth of spiritual intimacy. You will not arrive at a depth of spiritual reality if you avoid talking about money. The Bible, Jesus, wants to talk to you about money, not so that he can tap his foot and shame you. The Bible wants to talk about money because maybe, is it possible that just talking about spiritual, theoretical things in your world may not actually take you to a depth of beauty with Jesus if you leave money on the side and say, I refuse to let you talk to me about this part of my actual life. That maybe the doorway to you and I experiencing a deeper intimacy with Jesus and the Holy Spirit and us actually seeing the kingdom for what it is and seeing ourselves for who we are, maybe we have to deal with the room of money. Maybe we actually have to talk about that because the Bible actually talks about it. So, so we're going to talk about today. Would you dare to believe that a path to deeper spiritual intimacy for you may need to deal with money and how you deal with money? So our passage this morning is going to be in Mark chapter 12. 
You can turn there in your Bibles or on your phone. It'll be on the screen as well. Mark chapter 12. It's a well-known story. We'll read the few verses that kind of lead into the story, and then just six or seven verses of a, of a brief little interaction that Jesus has with his disciples and money. So this is the very end of Mark chapter 12, the last section, starting in verse 38. It says this, and in his teaching, he, that's Jesus, said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all these who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. So contextually, Mark chapter 12, all of Mark chapter 12, Jesus is kind of going after the same target through a couple different avenues. And here's, the, here's the, the, the focus of Jesus in Mark chapter 12. Jesus is going after people who for religious pretense or for image control or just to get the praise of men, all that they merely do is outward acts of obedience, but they have no interest in being radically internally transformed. Jesus is going after the appearance of godliness without actually having deep spiritual transformation going on in people. Jesus will not have it. And so he deals with the scribes and the Pharisees a lot in this chapter. And now this little story closes out the chapter where Jesus is going, hey, in the kingdom, we're not going to be just about pretense. In the kingdom, in my kingdom, the people of God are not to just do things for merely outward appearances so that they get the praise of man. I'm interested in actually going after the heart, so let's talk about it. And he does it the whole chapter, and he closes out with this little example of who is the spiritually fake and who is the spiritually deep. So he tells the story. He sits across from the temple treasury with his disciples. The treasury was this place Uh, where in the outer courts of the temple, you would go to the temple for sacrifices, you would go to the temple to pray with the priest, you would go to the temple to worship, but on the outer courts, before or after you did your religious duties and practices, there were these treasury boxes, there were these offering boxes, these canisters that you would put money into as you came came into or left the temple. And so the money that was given at the temple was used for two purposes. The, the, the Old Testament gave lots of guidance for the money that is to be given at the temple, and it was two primary purposes. The first purpose was for the well-being of and the actual functional living of the priests and the Levites. The tribe of Levi in the Old Testament, when they settle in the land of Israel and they divide up the land into the 12 tribes, Levi, they get to the end and Levi, the tribe of Levi is going, hey, you forgot to mention our plot of land. And they say, the Lord says, actually, no, you're not going to get any land. You're not going to get any inheritance in the land. You're actually going to serve the people's spiritual needs and shepherd them and be a priest over them, and you will be taken care of by the people's giving. 
And so priests, you will be sustained financially. You'll be sustained with grain and, and wheat and fruit and animals and money by the giving that people give at the temple. So the giving at the temple would take care of the priests and the people who were, that was their vocation to serve at the temple. Then the other need for the giving at the temple, the other place that the money went for the temple was the upkeep of the temple that this was an, an ornate building, the finest woods from all, the finest uh, wood from all over the world, from the finest trees from far off countries were shipped in to build this temple and then it was covered in gold and silver. There were enormous curtains and the priests had these ornate rich garments and there were storehouses to be built for all the grain and the food offerings that were being brought. And so the upkeep of the temple was a major undertaking. It was not cheap. It wasn't just built and then it lasted forever. They were constantly taking care of the temple and all the needs within the temple, financial needs within the temple. So that's when, when the, when the uh, disciples and Jesus are sitting across from the treasury, just kind of observing and even maybe listening for like how much money is splashing at the bottom of the, of the treasury box. And they're listening for it. They see all these wealthy people come in and they give, Jesus says, out of their abundance. And then they see this woman give these two copper coins, which we'll talk about in a second. But how much, so you can kind of go, okay, so people were giving large sums, and then this woman was giving a couple pennies. How much was expected for, a, for an Orthodox faithful Jew to give at the temple treasury? Well, there was always free will giving. You could give above and beyond, but the minimum requirement that was expected of the Jews was to give what we call a tithe. And we kind of think like tithe must, must mean religious offering, and it does. It's come to mean that, but tithe is merely the Old English, Old King James word for a tenth. It's just what the word means. The Jews were expected to give a tenth of all that they had, a tenth of their gold, a tenth of their silver, a tenth of their harvest, a tenth of their grain, a tenth of their animals. Like They were expected to give a tenth of what they possessed. That's where we get the word tithe. And so this poor widow who comes in and gives two small copper coins, we're told. The Greek word there is lepta. She gives two lepta. A lepton was the smallest coin in Roman circulation. Like it did not, it literally was like our penny, but we're told here the two of these made one penny. Like this is, this is smaller than even our modern day penny. And when Mark tells us that Jesus says and refers to her not just as a widow, but a poor widow, that's a double negative, which does not equal positive. Like it's not, it's not that Jesus isn't complimenting her. When he says a poor widow, it's almost, he's, 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 he wants the reader and the listener to know that this is the bottom rung of the bottom rung of the economic class. Widows would have already been the poorest people among them, already. They would have had no inheritance. They would have had no one to marry them, to take care of them. They couldn't own land, so they couldn't work a land. They would have been down and out already at the bottom of the economic ladder. And then Jesus says, this is a poor widow. It would almost be the equivalent at this day and age of saying, that's a poor homeless person. It's like, well, well, of course. Like, what did you think? It's like, no, 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 no. This is like the bottom of that rung. It doesn't get any poorer than that. This is quite possibly for the disciples. Some commentators and scholars said this. This was maybe like in the disciples' mind, the poorest person in Israel. Like she, it could not, she couldn't have gotten any poorer. A poor widow was at the bottom of the rung. And we're told she gives two lepta, two half pennies. And after witnessing this moment, large sums being dropped in, a tenth is kind of what's expected, and this woman giving two half pennies. That's the scene that they watch. And then verse 33 and 44, Jesus drops the proverb and drops the mic at the same time and says this, truly I say to you, verse 30, 43, this poor widow has put in more 
than all those who were contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. He praises the widow who gives out of her poverty over against, this is the clarity of the teaching by contrast, clarity by contrast, like she is not like them. She gave out of her poverty because they gave out of their abundance. What does that mean? This is normally how we tend to think about giving. We all tend to think about giving and generosity by giving out of our abundance. And here's how that works itself out. Out of the excess of what I make, out of the excess of what I earn, out of the excess of what I invest or what I save, out of that overflow and excess, I'll kind of clear the top off of my treasure chest. In my treasure chest, I got what I need, but I'll clear the top off. And man, look how much that could be. After, this is how we think about it, when it means to give out of your abundance is this. Let me let my money do for me what I want it to do for me, and then I'll give. Which begs the question for us, what do you want money to do for you? What do we want money to do for us? I'm not talking about like what items are you saving for, what trips are you planning for, what house do you want to save up a down payment for? Like, yes, your money will, could buy you those things. I'm not talking about that. I mean, like, there's a place in all of us that when we take what we have, what, we, what our income is, when we take what we've saved or what we've come into an inheritance, we take that. And then there's a deeper place in us that really believes if I had more than what I have, if I could get a little bit more than what I currently have, then my money would give me this intangible but truly existential reality that I don't currently have. I want money to be my pathway to giving me an existential reality that isn't currently mine. And here's what that looks like. Doesn't making a little bit more money or having a little bit more money, if you think about it, like think about what you actually have like in the bank, what you make, what your salary is, isn't there a little part of you that if you could make a little bit more, you would be a little bit less afraid than you are? Because wouldn't a little bit more money make you feel a little bit safer, a little bit more secure? Then I could save more so that if tragedy struck, then I would have what I needed. If I really wanted something, I could go buy it. And then I could have control over my reality. And if I could have control over my reality through my money, then I would be at peace. So do that soul math with me, for me, okay? I think more money would give me less fear. I think more money would make me feel more in control. I think having more money would make me feel at peace. So I think money is my path to peace. That's what I want money to do for me. Give me peace. Where are they selling it? Give me peace, money, please. But it doesn't stop there. I also want money to give me power. I want money to give me authority. I want money to give me respect. What will people think about me when they know what I actually have and what I've saved for and how I've worked it and what I've invested in? What will they think about me? What will my reputation be when people know that I have means? I want money to give me access. I don't just mean like to Taylor Swift tickets. Like I want, I want money to give me access into networks and circles that I feel like I'm on the outside of because I don't have the tax bracket that those people have. And so if I had a little bit more, wouldn't that give me the access that I wanted to the glory that I think lives in that network over there? Man, if I was in that circle, 
If I could drive that car, if I could buy that house, if I could send my kids to that school, if I could buy those clothes, it would put me in that network. And then what would, man, I would have some glory from, being, from bumping elbows with those kinds of people. So the more this onion begins to get peeled, the more layers that we begin to peel back on what we want our money to do for us, here's what we begin to realize. Money is perhaps the number one place that human beings love to feel like gods and goddesses. It feels like the easiest path to me feeling like a god. Karl Marx, I don't read enough Karl Marx to quote him, but scholars that I read this week have read him and quoted him for me, just so you know, okay? Karl Marx literally said, people think money is the easiest pathway to omnipotence. If I had more money, I could be all powerful. Nothing, I would be untouchable. Do you know who the only omnipotent being in the world is? God himself. I actually think money could make me feel like God. That's why it's so hard. That's why it's so difficult to actually loosen my grip on what I want money to do for me because, but it makes me feel like a God. It gives me just a little hint of feeling like I'm in control, of feeling like I'm untouchable, of feeling like I have a defense around me, of feeling like I'm secure and I have the glory and the power and the security that I want. Which is why Jesus would say, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not throwing shade at rich people. He's saying, you know how difficult it is to tell someone who thinks they have everything they need that they don't have everything they need? Do you know how hard it is to convince someone who has all the means and all the access that they have a deep need? Why would I need Jesus if my money can already give me everything I really want? So then Jesus observes this interaction, the rich, wealthy, dropping in large sums, and the widow, and this is the rebuke that he gives to the people dropping in. This is what he says to them and to us. These people have given out of their abundance. And what that means is, what we've just talked about, when I give out of my abundance, here's what I'm saying. I want my money to do all that I want my money to do for me, and then I will give, and then I will be generous. That's what it means to get out of your, give out of your abundance. But you go, but it's, it's kind of like Walmart, not throwing shade at Walmart, I'm sorry, I mean, maybe a little bit, but like if, I'm, not, I'm not throwing shade. There's lots of companies that are like this. Do you know they give away more money than any organization in the world, and they give less than 1% of their revenue? Like, they're, they're, not, <laughs> they're not generous just because they give this giant amount. That's what... He's, th- he's saying it to the Walton family in first century right here. Like, you guys all give, like, hey, you're giving large amounts. You think that makes you generous. It doesn't. You've wanted your money to do for you what you want your money to do for you, and then you'll give off, you'll, you'll, you'll top it off. Aren't I generous? Look at how much I dropped in. But then about the widow, he says, she gave out of her poverty. He actually says, verse 44, Will, you can throw this up there, second half of verse 44, he says this, But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. In the eyes of Jesus, please hear this. Please hear this kingdom economics that Jesus just lays out for you. This is what we're going to unpack. This is world upside down turning language from Jesus. According to Jesus, in the kingdom of God, the widow gave more than the wealthy. She's given more than all the rich, for she parted with all she had. How in the world could someone part with all she had? 
scholars aren't sure, commentators aren't sure, but it seems to say that Jesus would say these two half pennies was literally all she had. She, gave, she parted with her life savings, two half pennies. How in the world could a widow do that? How in the world could a widow who's at the bottom, a poor widow at the bottom of the bottom of the economic rung have these two half pennies and not be saying, I, oh, I have to, where am I, where am I going to eat tonight? And what am I, what am I going to, where am I going to sleep tonight? And who's going to, who's going to pay my taxes to Rome? And who's going to, what, how, in, how in the world could this woman part with what she, all that she had? This widow's willing to give, even if it means exhausting all of her resources, because she believes the Lord will meet all of her needs. Here's what she's saying over against those that give out of their abundance, like we do, typically. I don't need money to give me control. I don't need money to give me power. I don't need money to give me peace. I don't need money to give me glory. I already have what I need from the Lord. My needs are met. I don't need this money. And from that belief, from that trust, She's very generous. She trusts the Lord to take care of her. She trusts the Lord to give her what she needs, and she puts her entire estate in the treasury. Now, I'm not saying that everyone in here should go sell their entire estate, but maybe. But that's not the point of the passage. There's tons of, uh, tons of other, of those 2,300 verses, there are hundreds that talk about saving, being financially responsible. I'm talking, it's not, it's not saying, hey, if you want to be like the widow, you got to go sell your entire estate off. That's not what Jesus is saying. But if you, when you hear me say that, you go, oh, thank God. Eh, maybe you need to go sell off more than you think you do. She gives two pennies, two half pennies, in the eyes of the Lord, she is a generous giver in the kingdom. Which kind of, and I got to be honest, this passage really jacked me up this week. I was like, dang it. Because let me tell you one of the observations of what Je when Jesus praises this woman who gives all she has because she trusts in the Lord to meet all of her needs and, and doesn't, doesn't really give a whole lot of light and glory to the rich who are giving large sums of money. Let me tell you what Jesus is saying. And it totally destroys my self-conceived categories of generosity. You don't need much to be generous. Really, you don't need anything to be generous. But I thought in the kingdom, I, like, I needed more to give more. Actually, you don't need anything to be generous. And this is, this is, this is what this means. Giving from your abundance is not generous. Giving from your poverty is. And this woman... Trust the Lord to take care of her needs so she's able to be generous. She's not calculating. She's not thinking, oh, do I give 10% this month or 12% or do I only give 8%? Like, what, where, how do I? She's not, she's not thinking about that. Here's what this means. I don't care if you made, and, and, and this is, I love this about our church. We're not just generationally diverse. We're very socioeconomically diverse. I love it in this room. We have people in this room who made $50 this week. We also have people in this room that made $500,000 this week. I would love to meet you. But we, <laughs> and everything in between, everything in between. And here's what the Lord is saying to both parties. You can both be generous. In fact, if you're not generous with the $5 or the $50, 
we, we so tend to think when I make more, then I will be generous. And that is a kingdom logical fallacy. That if you are not generous with what you have, you know how many times people say, man, if I won the lottery, you know how much I'd give away? But you're not giving away anything of what you have right now. So what makes you think that if you won the lottery, you would just suddenly become a generous person? That's what he's saying in the kingdom, you don't need anything to be generous. So quit comparing how much you make to how much they make. He's not asking you to, for, an, for a dollar amount. So in the kingdom, you can be generous from your poverty. In the kingdom, you can be generous no matter what you have. But if, if that's really true, if Jesus, if Jesus is literally saying it doesn't matter how much you made this week and actually in the kingdom, the two penny giver is more than the large sum giver, truly, that, that's not hyperbole, that's not Jesus trying to make a point. That is real in the kingdom. If that's true, though, go one, one layer down for me, one more step down in that reality. If that's true, Jesus really, really does not care how much you give. He does not care about a dollar amount. He does not care about what you are putting in the offering here or one of our beautiful organizations in this city or your church back home. Uh, he does not care about what the dollar amount is. You know what Jesus cares about? Why are you giving that amount? It does not matter how much you give. What matters is why are you giving what you're giving? Are you giving to anything from a place in your heart that already trusts the Lord to take care of you and meet your needs? Or are you wanting your money to take care of you and meet your needs? And then after you have your needs met by your money, then you will give from your abundance. Why you're giving what you're giving is far more. It's what the whole chapter has been about. Religious pretense versus like real spiritual transformation. Now, you might think here, this, I knew it. This is, this, I came to church, new visiting, and church is talking about money. They, they, they need me to give. No, we don't. I'm really serious. Like, I could show you the slides. 12 South is doing, we're doing okay. We have a practice here. I have no idea who gives what. I have no idea who gives what amount. I have no clue. I don't even have access to that in our database. I literally can't. I could, I've tried to hack into it. I can't even, I can't, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I haven't. Uh, you can't even see, I can't even see it. I have no idea. You might think, oh, he, they're down. They had a bad December. They're down. No, we're not. Midtown does not need your money. Jesus, Jesus does not need your money. Please hear that. That's what this, that's what this passage is saying. He's praising the woman that gave him a penny. He doesn't need it. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He is not in a deficit. Maybe you need to give your money away. Just maybe. What if is it Jesus doesn't need your money for you to give your money away? What if you need to be giving your money away for you? You know how I know this? You know how I know it really does not matter how much you give? This blew me away this week studying this passage. So this is this little like four verse story widow goes down to be known as the widow's mite, which might was the old King James version for the, the penny that she, she gave, the widow's mite. And then it, that's the end of chapter 12. In the very beginning of chapter 13, the very next section is it's known as Jesus' farewell discourse or his Olivet discourse. It's, it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's, it's a famous like teaching section of Jesus, almost like the Sermon on the Mount. You know the very, 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 very first thing he says in chapter 13, verse one? Widow, widow gives her penny at the temple treasury. Very next sentence. Very next sentence. You know what it says? Jesus began to tell the disciples about how the very temple that they're sitting in and standing in is about to be destroyed. 
Now he's talking about a historical moment about 35 years from this moment when the temple will be crushed by Rome from a Jewish revolt that was happening. And he's saying, hey, this temple, it's gonna be gone. And then I started doing this like, oh my goodness. How would the disciples have seen this moment play out? This woman who Jesus is praising gives her entire life savings of a penny in the temple treasury. Remember what the temple treasury was for? The upkeep of the temple. And then Jesus says, yeah, the temple's gonna be destroyed. Like the thing she's investing in, the thing that she's giving her money to isn't even gonna be here anymore. It's going to be destroyed in 30 years. It's Jesus's exclamation point at the end of this woman saying she gave all she had, she gave her entire life savings to the upkeep of a building that in 30 years is gonna be destroyed. Translation, I don't need your money. That's what Jesus is saying. It's, it, it's so not about Jesus and the kingdom not being in the black. <laughs> like, it's, it do, it, he does not need your money. What he's trying to maybe dig out of all of us is this, is not will you give more money, but do you know why you don't give more money? What if he's way more concerned with that place than any, any amount that you may or may not give? The question is not how much will you choose to give today? You have your pledge cards on your on your seat. No, you don't. We don't do that. But it's like, we're not do, that's not what it's about. It's not how much will you choose to give. It's do you trust the one that gave it to you in the first place? Do you actually trust him to take care of you? That's what Jesus is going after. And would you, would you dare to let your giving or lack of giving or the way that you think about giving, would you let it show you, reveal to you, expose in you how much you do or don't trust the one who has promised to take care of you. That, that's what Jesus is going after. But when we get out of our abundance, when we kind of clear the top off the treasure chest, okay, my money's, oh man, I feel good about what's in here. Now let me, let me give the excess, let me give out of my abundance. It's a lot harder for us to actually tell the truth about ourselves, about what it is or who it is that we actually trust to take care of us. It's a lot harder for our giving to expose in us who or what we trust when we give out of our abundance. But if you will listen to your own life, if you will listen, if you will let your life speak to you, your money, your generosity will tell you, it will expose to you who you think will take care of you. That's what's at the bottom of this reality. And here's the truth that every member of the kingdom maybe knows and has just forgotten. You've only ever had one provider anyway, and it's not you. Someone else has been your provider and your defender, and it's not you. This is why Jesus is teaching in Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount teaching about this. He talks about the lilies of the field and the flowers of the lilies of the, of the field and the, and the birds of the air. And he starts talking about how they don't worry about where their next meal is gonna come from. The lilies in the field aren't worried about what they're gonna wear. But then he says, do they not have everything they need? And then Jesus says, and does your father in heaven not love you so much more than he loves birds and flowers? You think he lets them go without what they need? What do you think you're saying about him when you don't give because you think you have to give you what you need? When you think you have to be your own provider, what do you think that's saying about what you believe about him? This widow is a real life lily. I like to imagine it was her name. 
Lily. Because Jesus is saying, hey, remember that thing I taught you in the Sermon on the Mount? She's living it. She's embodying it. She's living like a true flower of the field or bird of the year. She trusts that the God of Israel will meet all of her needs. And do you know, and I, you do know this, let me connect this for you. When you trust that the God of Israel will meet you in all of your needs and give you what you need and take care of you and defend you and provide for you, do you know what life not believing that is like? Matthew 6 uses a word a lot. It's called anxiety. It's anxious. I don't, I don't know what, what I'm not gonna have what I need. Who's gonna take care of me? I, I, have, to th- I, have, to, I have to worry about what tomorrow. I have, to, I have to think about who's gonna give me what I need. And the Lord, the king of the kingdom is saying, no, you don't. I have always been your provider. Do you trust me? We tend to think if I give more, who's gonna take care of me, which presumes that you have to take care of you, which presumes that you have to be your provider and defender. And this is, this is the irony, <laughs> sinful irony, but irony of our stinginess and our anxiety of our like grasping onto our stuff and not being generous givers and only giving out of our abundance. Do you know what our stinginess says? It says what we believe about the Lord who gave us everything we have in the first place. That's what's painfully ironic about it. Who do you think gave you what you have? He's letting you steward it. We've talked about this with time and talents too. He's the one who gave it to you. And when we get stingy with our stuff and our possessions, when we only give out of our, our abundance, here's what it's saying. We're actually saying, well, do I, okay, so maybe you gave me all this stuff. Maybe you gave me my income. You gave me my inheritance. You gave me this, but are you gonna keep taking care of me? It's like, I gave it to you to begin with. You think I would stop? I can't stop being your father. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna let you go. But when we get stingy, we say, well, maybe you gave it to me, but it kind of feels like I've earned it now. Or maybe you gave it to me, but are you, are you gonna keep being good to me? This is why the idea of a tithe, of a tenth, is not a bad practice to start with for the church. Now, you need to know, Bible fact, tithe, 10%, not mentioned anywhere in the New Testament. Does, does not apply to the church. Probably a good place to start, but does not apply, like, you know what the Lord says, Jesus, Paul says in, um, in 2 Corinthians? The Lord loves a cheerful giver. Who gives 10%? No. 10% is not a kingdom number. But tithe may be a good place to start, just a suggestion. And here's why. Do you know, this, is, this plays at the like, painful irony. Imagine that the Lord um, doesn't own a cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the orchards on a billion hills. Okay? And from his orchard, the Lord gives you 10 apples. He gives them to you. They're your apples. And then at the end of the harvest with the 10 apples that he's given you, he says, can I have one of those back? That would be a 10th, by the way, for your, you math whizzes out there. He gives you 10. Can I have one back? First, do you think he needs that apple? No, he's got, a, he's got orchards on a billion hills. He doesn't need your apple. And, and if, he, if he's given you 10 and he asks for one back, wouldn't it seem logical to go, Oh, yeah, dude. I mean, you gave me this to begin with. You gave me everything I have anyway, and you want one? Kind of sounds like I'm making out like a bandit. Like, I, I get nine of these things that you gave me? But here's what tends to happen when we get given the 10 apples, and then we have them, and then we hear the Lord say, hey, can I have one of those? 
We go, but I kind of worked so hard for these, and these kind of feel like my apples now. And how do I know what you're going to do with the one apple that I give back? And I got a family, and I got vacations, and they cost four apples, and so I'm going to need, you know, <laughs> like, we... We, it's just, the longer we hold on to what the Lord has entrusted to us, do you know what happens? We get really stingy and entitled. They're his apples. He doesn't need an apple back, I promise. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's for our own good that we would go, yeah, you can have one. Maybe you can add eight because that's how tightly I'm clenching onto these. But I, I, yeah, you can have one. And that would be for our good, not for his deficit. And is it possible that if we balk at that idea, if we bow up to that, is it possible that we've actually arrived at the place now where we don't have money, but money has us? We are compelled and controlled by money, and we're actually like, it's the one, money is the one controlling the puppet on the string. We are not managing our money, our money has controlled us. Has money become our God? And so if that's true for many of us, self-included, if money has us, how in the world could a group of wealthy Americans in this room, which by the way is basically all of us, because if you have a job in this room, if you're in this room and you are employed, you're in the wealthiest 1% of the world. Of the world. Now, maybe you're not in the wealthiest 1% of this room, but you're in the wealthiest 1% of the world. So how would, a, how would a, the wealthiest people in the world learn to start giving out of their poverty like this woman. Now, again, there are some of you who are having trouble paying rent this month. That's, that's real. We have benevolence. We would love for our community to wrap our arms around you. We, it's, not, it's not glorious uh, to suffer for the sake of the gospel just to be, and to be poor. Like, that's not what we're saying. If you, if you need money, there, there, there's possibility that we could help you. I'm not saying that. But for most of us, in the room, how would we ever learn to give out of our poverty? We would have to come to the place that truly believes that even if we aren't financially poor, we are spiritually bankrupt. If you wanna give like this widow, you don't have to sell all you have necessarily. If you wanna give like this widow though, you do have to necessarily believe that you are truly in as much spiritual poverty as she was financially. You have to get in touch with your spiritual poverty, and I don't mean theoretically. I mean actually. You have to understand, I am spiritually and morally bankrupt, and someone else has come and paid my debt. The problem, though, the, the, the cyclical pattern in this, though, we, we've hinted at this, is that when I start to get a little in touch with my spiritual poverty or my moral bankruptcy, having a little bit more money makes me feel not quite as spiritually poor, and I like not feeling spiritually poor. So having a little bit more money makes me go, well, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not that bad. I can take care of myself. I'm self-made. Look what I've earned. Look what I've done. And so I can keep my spiritual poverty at an arm's length the more I make. And I can begin to feel like I have what I need with my money. So why do I need Jesus again? But if you'll dare to ask the Lord to show you your sin 
If you'll dare to ask the Lord to show you your spiritual poverty, here's what you would see. You would see that the sacrificial gift of this widow was merely a shadow of the sacrificial gift of Jesus. Yes, this woman gave her entire livelihood. Jesus gave his life. 2 Corinthians 8, Will, we have this. 2 Corinthians 8, and we'll close with this, says this. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, for your sakes, he became poor. So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Do you know that you have a debt that you could never repay? But the Lord decided to become poor for your sake so he could pay it for you. He gave out of his poverty to you so that he could pay off your debt and not for one second hold it over your head. For your sake, he became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich. So when Jesus challenges the place in you that hoards and is stingy, what he's actually going after is, do you trust me? And here's what the gospel says to you. It's not asking you to trust some remote, far off God that says you better give what I demand or else you'll pay for it. What the gospel says, what gospel cheerful giving looks like is this. I want you to lose control and trust in the God who came to earth to lose control for you. And that actually might be good for you. Would you dare to believe that this king, Philippians 2 would say, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, became poor, so that he could pay off your debt out of his riches. If you see Jesus like that, if you see Jesus losing everything for you, if you see Jesus emptying his pockets, like leveraging every resource of the kingdom for your sake, saying, they can have it all. I will, I will stop at nothing. I will give everything away, including my life for them. It'll melt you because here's what it does to you. You will begin to see even though it cost him greatly, here's what the gospel says, you were worth it to him. He doesn't think he made a bad investment by buying you back. He's not looking at his return and going, well, maybe we missed on that one. Jesus, out of his poverty, gave to you to buy you back that you might become rich in him. You were worth it. You were worth it to him. And the more you learn to trust that, the more money won't have you, Jesus will. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so spiritually poor, but money helps us think that we aren't. And this deep connection of our truest need, like we sang out before the sermon, our, our deepest need that you've met, that you've paid for us to set us free would you help us to see you, Jesus, and loosen our grip or loosen money's grip on us that we might see your poverty and learn to trust you, Jesus, with ours. Let's call this in your name. Amen.